Welcome, welcome to the Talking Transformation podcast presented to you from the Western Cape Pot Bunker located here in the heart of Cape Town, South Africa. This pod is presented to provide a platform and a voice for built environment professionals and interest groups who are working towards transforming the places and spaces here in South Africa. It is dedicated to those individuals and community groups that are supporting both the formal and informal processes that are shaping our cities and our spaces. Last month, June 2019, saw planning and the visions and aspirations of the country put into sharp focus when President Ramaphosa delivered his State of the Nation address. It's commonly known here in South Africa as the Sonar Address and really sets the tone for the government for the year ahead. Talk of a new city driven by the fourth wave of an industrial revolution was the cornerstone feature of the President's address that day. And there was quite an immediate uh, reaction and response that varied uh, from different corners. SACPLAN, or the South African uh, Planning Council, widely applauded the speech and went on in a press release to suggest that never in the life of a democratic state has such attention been accorded to planning-related matters and with such clarity. Conversely, we saw an open letter communicated via the Daily Maverick from three emeritus professors, Dave Dewar, Julian Cook and Lucien Lagrange from UCT and they were supported by a number of other uh, professionals and uh, academics who were quick to counter that, to quote, mending our ailing existing cities is far more urgent than that of a new smart city. So there's tension and different uh, thinking and approaches that are being put put forward by, uh, by different players. Um, the president's put his perspective forward, people have responded to that, and planning is very much up front and center in the debate. And that's precisely why Talking Transformation is being produced to continue the debate and consider multiple perspectives that exist and recognize that uh, there's not going to be one size that fits all. This week for our fifth, fifth full episode, our guest is Dr. Geshi Karuri Sabina, who is visiting the Western Cape. Her insights into the Sonar Address and more broadly uh, some of the challenges we face in the built environment professions and the education system that supports it makes for very much uh, a very interesting and compelling listening. I hope you enjoy it and look forward to getting feedback from you via the voice message link that the uh, Anchor podcast platform uh, provides or via our Twitter page uh, at TalkingTransfo1. That's the TalkingTransfo, all in word, and the number one. I'm here today, uh, this afternoon, I'm uh, recording from Cape Town uh, Central Business District. I'm with my colleague Geshi Kamuri Sabina, who I've known for many years, I'm guessing maybe 10 or more years we've known each other and um, I've asked her to come in today to really uh, think and reflect back on some of the, uh, the announcements that were made a couple of weeks ago in the State of the Nation address. Uh, State President Ramaphosa was very clear in terms of his intent around a new city, a new city that was going to be built on the basis of the fourth technical uh, industrial revolution. And when we were chatting yesterday, I think you had some very uh, interesting perspectives, Geshi. So I thought it'd be great to come uh, in terms of this Talking Transformation podcast and start to think about uh, some of those uh, ideas that he put forward and how we could uh, look at that within the frame of um, your experience within many of the uh, cities and towns around the country. Mm. You have for many years been associated with uh, cities, uh, uh, South African Cities Network uh, and, 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 uh, and other, uh, I think, human uh, 
Human Sciences Research Council. You've been around. You understand cities. I think you're one of the leading proponents of understanding urbanization, what it is and how it's taking us. So maybe just an immediate uh, reflection on some of those uh, sentiments that the state president was sharing with this, the, the country a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, no, thanks, Peter. It's really great to be on your on your podcast. This is amazing. I am very privileged. Thank you for coming. So, you know, initially, I suspect like many of us in the urban space, I was quite delighted that the president was going into content on the urban. You know, many of us have been trying to Absolutely. advocate around the importance of cities and urbanization for a long time. Uh, around 2016, when the uh, integrated urban development framework was finally promulgated, at least it gave us an urban policy that you know was recognized, but again, it was probably familiar mainly to people in the urban space. It wasn't so much in the public consciousness as, oh, this is a really important issue. Instead, a lot of what you've tended to get are those kind of dramatic statements about cities are exploding, bursting at the seams, we've got to stop people from moving. Major urbanization rates, immigration, exactly. etc. cetera. As a, as a very negative narrative, yeah. uh, almost an anti-urban narrative. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm always sensitive to the fact that rural development is a real issue, but obviously cities are a going concern. And so it was initially, as, as, as the president started making this statement, for me, I was like, wow, great, he's actually going to say something about cities. So for the buzz it's created, for the awareness it's created about cities, I think, great. Unfortunately, I think perhaps the particular sentiments and the particular examples he chose to then go into, I think are really highly problematic. And I think for a few of us, and it's interesting because I think part of the buzz that's picked up is people, and I've read a number of articles the last few days commenting on this. Do we need new cities? What is this smart cities thing? Are we ready for it? Um, what is this thing about 4IR and cities? Is that the future? High-speed rail, is that what we really need? You know, Are we the Dubai of the future? Is this really the vision for South Africa? And, and and I really feel as though there were perhaps some judgments made in the kind of examples given for the urban vision that I that I think are problematic. And, and in, in a way, if we're not careful, I think could really divert a lot of the energy from what many of us believe ought to be the agenda and are the things we've all been working very hard at, you know, only to suddenly have um, what I fear might be a very sort of uh, uh, exciting and uh, alluring narrative yeah, that just diverts attention from what really needs to be done, at least in my view. Well, I guess there's sort of two, two sides to the coin. I mean, on the one side, uh, commentators, and I think what, what I'm hearing you say is it's, it's not necessarily helpful when certain of the uh, cities are struggling with some very basic issues around um, infrastructure, um, for rail issues, if we're going to talk about bullet trains, yes. we're seeing a situation where some of our uh, backbone of the rail network that exists is really struggling. That said, how train, I think, has been one of the uh, testimonials to that. It, ca it can be done. It can change the way that some of our cities operate. Um, so the flip side of the coin is others who, who might be supporting those aspirations are saying, well, you've got to have a dream. You've got to have an, a, a vision. Mm -hmm. And so I guess somewhere in between is that it's... Um, how, how do you deal with that reality whilst at the same time maintaining this, this idea of a, a vision of hope and aspiration? I, I love the idea, uh, the idea of a dream and a vision, but I think that um, I think that if we're just going to borrow a dream and a vision from somewhere else, again, I just said if this is about us becoming Dubai, um, you know, then I'm not sure that's the dream or vision we ought to be selling. Uh, I wish we would sell an urban vision that's compelling and exciting for 
South Africans, but why can't that be about the amazing integrated city that we all mm. dreamed about in 1994? Why can't that be a compelling vision? Why can't a compelling vision include a functioning metro rail? You know, why does it have to be a hard train? Um, why can't Understood. a compelling vision be for a kind of urban typology that we actually like, that perhaps gives us the densities that we planners like to talk about, but also meets the aspiration of young urban dwellers? Why can't there be a vision that's relevant? Very interesting. I mean, the, the, the Integrated Urban Development Framework, or IUDF, seems to be very clear in terms of using, for example, public transportation as leverage and the, the, the backbone around which to restructure our cities. Um, and yet, at the same time, as you say, that some of the fundamentals uh, are failing. We've seen major investments in things like bus rapid transit yeah. around some of the metros. Mm -hmm. And I mean, even those have got their own, own challenges, whether it's operational costs and the ability to roll out uh, at scale. You've, you've spent quite a lot of time in your, in, in your, in your, in your recent uh, work researching and leading on the debate around South African cities and some of the smaller secondary towns mm. and so forth. Mm. Now, what do you think some of the prevailing challenges above uh, and beyond the uh, infrastructure like the rail that we talked about, what do you think some of these challenges are that, that you've seen and experienced in your, in your time with uh, South African cities network? Yeah. So look, there's some that I, I would say are in common between the large sort of metros and secondary cities, largely around demographic stagnation perhaps mm. around some of the, particularly the, the spatial kind of um, uh, uh, patterns that we have mm. which you know some would argue and I've seen the work that talks about actually there's been massive change but many of us know that we still continue to have that sort of township versus core you know uh, densification through inform informalization kind of dynamic and so there's a lot about our historic organization that I think is a challenge for both big cities and smaller ones, because you still distinctly see those spatial characteristics. So, you know, that spatial quality um, or lack of spatial quality. Uh, but I think uh, another big one, interestingly, is the dynamics of change. So I think migration is a big one and many of us aren't well equipped to deal with it. Uh, I think um, uh, arrangements, I would call institutional arrangements that haven't been able to respond adequately to those changes. So one of the comments, you know, I commented earlier about, um, you know, I really dislike narratives about urban explosion and bursting at the seams because the one thing cities can do very well is to grow. Um, There's a sponginess to them. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's one of the most city-ish things mm. that uh, that we could celebrate. And that I think that's, that's really universal. Um, but if institutions don't themselves understand that need to be agile and to be responsive to dynamics uh, and maybe even directive, then I think you've got a problem. So I think we've misread the situation. Um, you know, we can't control the movement of people. I mean, how many times have you moved, Peter, in your life? Enough. <laughs> and enough. is that because, I mean, there's many reasons why people move. I've moved enough in my life as well. And so this idea that the perfect situation is where we get everybody to just stay put so that we can plan around them. <laughs> so there's a, there's a churn as well as, a churn, as, as a pace yeah. that comes with that intensity cities, of movement. Cities do that. Cities grow. Cities change. And we can do that too. So I think that's difficult both for the biggest cities because they really are bigger than they've ever been. And that's yeah. difficult. Uh, I think it's difficult for the secondary cities. And we're just releasing next week uh, uh, another study in a series we've been doing on secondary cities. And this one is on how secondary cities understand economic development. Because I think their challenge is that uh, many of them still function like small towns. 
towns in, mm. in spite of the fact that they're really quite significantly growing uh, or significant sized economies in fact. Uh, so I think there's some issues around that again in terms of institutional growth and adaptation to the reality of what they are. Uh, but those changes aren't only upward changes. So one of the things we've done over time is to compare what's been going on in a place like Rustenburg that grew fast sure. and grew under maybe difficult uh, environmental, political, economic circumstances into what it is now, but that's really got to look forward, uh, look ahead quite seriously and quite urgently to the change in the industry that underpins the growth. Uh, and then places like Welcome, which is a city in or a secondary city in decline, that if you were to read its document, seems not to recognize this. Mm, yeah. <laughs> because all the documents continue and the plans continue to refer to it as a growth story. When in fact things are, are, are fundamentally changing within the economy that is going to set them back. And so cities grow and cities become smaller. And so this idea of being a shrinking city and maybe the opportunities that that might bring completely bypass you if you continue to describe your city the way you always have described your city. <laughs> it, it's really interesting you're raising that because earlier in one of the earlier podcasts when we spoke to Yondela, who's just moved, Yondela Silamela, who has just moved uh, to Paris and is going to be working in uh, Eastern Europe, she was talking about this whole question of de-densification of some of the cities and you know normally when we've talked in these metropolitan contexts that de-densification is not even something we even imagine other than de-densification of a particular informal settlement so it's almost getting your head around that and here you are a couple of weeks on talking about it's actually happening here in South Africa and you know it's very easy to forget that what I also found very interesting you know a couple of years ago when we were looking at this uh, at a more national uh, space was this, this this idea of those secondary cities and towns, the growth, and in percentage terms, um, the growth of the top five, um, and in fact, I think it was the top 15 of our municipalities, none of the metros were in that space in the percentage terms. Yeah. So we started to see places like Swatland, Gamagara, uh, and others um, uh, hit, hitting very um, uh, high uh, levels of uh, annual growth coming off particularly low uh, low base. But I think Joburg and Tswani were in the f number 15 and 16 or some sort. So again, it's this idea of you know where things are happening and the pace of change and where the economy is um, is playing that role. It's it's having a direct increase or decrease in the urbanisation rates. You know, and and I mean, so true. And one of the things, in fact, when we began this series, the first study we did was a data-driven study that tried to study some of those dynamics because. There was already, I think, going back to 20, yeah, early, maybe 2010, 2011, 2012, uh, an emerging uh, a, a, a query around secondary cities and rapidly growing um, um, secondary cities. And so we did this data-driven study to get those stats. And indeed, you do find that you have these really rapidly growing smaller places. As you correctly mentioned, of course, it's off a very low base. Sure. And so one has to understand that. Uh, what I find is that, first of all, in the public understanding of what that rapid growth means, sometimes people exaggerate it to think that we have new Joburgs and new Cape Towns growing everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And then you have to remind people that the base is so small that even with the rapidest <laughs> growth, you're not talking about major new metropolitan areas popping up around the country. Uh, uh, the big six are still the big six and that isn't And probably will so, remain so for some time, uh, but, for the but, but we should be keeping our eyes wide open. <laughs> Then that's my second point. As we keep our eyes wide open on understanding this rapid growth of smaller places, I'm not sure that we as planners, we as policymakers have really gotten our heads around what that means. Mm. 
Uh, and I think it's partly why we're doing these exploratory studies is to understand that, okay, so if you're growing that fast as a small place, not because we think you're going to be a metro, but as a small place growing that fast, there's a role you're playing in the space economy. So clearly there's a role, whether it's in terms of absorbing population, some sort of economic thing is happening, there's service issues. So there's, a, there's something that's happening there. But what does that mean? What does that something happening mean in terms of what an institutional response ought to be? Governance frameworks, scaling up around supply chain and to be able to respond. Yeah. I mean, the last thing we want is, again, you know, we like dichotomizing things in South Africa is begin to have a, you know, swing this way or that. Does it mean stop supporting metros, support secondary cities or rural versus urban? You know, we like creating these polarities. I just hope that that's not where it's headed. But certainly there's some attention that needs to be given to this phenomenon of rapid growth. Well, let's bring it back to the the, the question of of, of this uh, new city, a new city to be built to accommodate uh, the fourth technical revolution. I find find it very interesting when uh, my observation in many of the the metros uh, has been that a lot of the development is happening in spite of any planning regime, in spite of any uh, formal arrangements. The informal sector in accommodation, burgeoning backyard accommodation, uh, increased uh, informal settlement and the densification of existing long-established informal settlements uh, seems to be playing a massive role. And I think that was, from my side, uh, one of the things that um, perhaps the president's speech didn't reflect uh, well enough on was this idea that you know, the fourth economy will solve everything. It doesn't really help you if you don't even have access to electricity or internet. And the fourth, what's the fourth tech revolution going to do for you in those circumstances? So uh, maybe just maybe some fre- reflections you might have on this idea of a formal versus informally driven um, uh, growth of our of our cities and towns. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think informality is something South Africa has struggled to come to terms with for a long time. And I think it's even fairly recent that, uh, I think it's very recent, in fact, that in some of the formal spaces that you and I are in, Mm. Peter, that people even talk about it as something that's not just illegal. I remember a few years ago having officials say, why are we even talking about backyarding? It's illegal. (laughs) You know, and so, um, so then that wasn't long ago. So, so it, it isn't. You're right. Yeah. So I think we're fessing up to our informality much later than most of Africa, mm. uh, because I guess we are stuck in this in between world where we, uh, I think, probably were ashamed of it and were very much in we'll get rid of it sort of mode for er- the longest. Er- er- eradicate informal eradicate settlements. Informal that was the settlements. Wording, That's right. Eradicate informal settlements. Backyard shacks are illegal. Uh, Got to clear them out. Uh, the informal traders are, are illegal traders, you know. So that narrative, I think, very recently, you know, was 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 really the prevalent narrative. So a narrative that now begins to say that actually the informal settlement is contributing X percent to our economic yeah, growth, yeah. or the informal sector is the only one creating jobs in the last quarter, or supplying accommodation, or supplying accommodation at the rate around which we uh, expect. And how could we do more of this? You know, <laughs> this is all. This is this is all quite recent, yeah. and I think it's important that we admit to that. Um, I think, um, and and I remember part of that negative narrative around informality was also posited as, um, I guess, a post-apartheid kind of, uh, you know, if you remember the language about dignity. So that meant that you were accepting a lack of dignity and less than for black people, obviously, if you are supporting, you know, so we can't have this because not only is it illegal, it doesn't, it's indignified and we would, it's almost inhumane for us to be uh, accepting this. That narrative is shifting slowly. 
Um, I don't think it's shifted altogether, as we know, and many of our mm. cities continue to struggle with that institutionally, I don't think. So uh, recently we did some work with Salga where um, there's some really a great piece of work that's probably going to go through the motions now through Salga structures in terms of beginning to create a policy view for how local government could think about informality, some sort of a floor, some sort of a platform on which local policy could be built up. Now, many of the cities have been doing, I know Cape Town's been thinking about this, Joburg has, mm. uh, but many of, our, many of us still don't quite have a, an enabling, if you want, policy infrastructure because we don't have a sound policy position actually on the issue of informality. So the IUDF acknowledges that we've got to think about the informal sector, but isn't obviously making any policy statement on this is what we think uh, is the position of the informal sector in Understood. our housing sector yeah. or our transport sector or our econ economy. So, that, so that's difficult. Uh, and I think that's part of the journey we have to travel. But I also think that, you know, we also use these words like co-creation and co-production and we want to work with the grassroots and, and you know, without perhaps appreciating how difficult, number one, that mm. is, and maybe asking the question about capacity on both sides. What's the capacity of public institutions that we occupy now to engage meaningfully uh, with the grassroots in general and with an informal sector of any kind? And then what's the capacity on that side to engage with a state as well? These are conversations, by the way, in other African countries that have been going on forever. Sure, sure. <laughs> so we're not unique is what you're saying. We're not <laughs> unique. In fact, we might even be behind the curve on some of this. Yeah. It, it does beg some questions around the sort of professional response. If I think about the built environment professions, but architects, planners, uh, engineering standards and so forth, it might need a, a rethink on some of that. Um, any thoughts on that in terms of how we go about uh, skilling uh, at... Uh, at greater numbers? So this is a big deal for me. So obviously there's some of the scholars, both you and I know, that have been working on whether it's informal housing sure, or informal work for many years. But they're few and far between, which mm. is why we can count them on our hands. And it's been the same people who've yeah. been doing it. So it's the same handful of people who've been doing that work. I'm very passionate. So one of my passion topics, uh, as you might know, is townships and township developments, only because I think... Um, they've been so under-theorized, mm. uh, over-described, under-theorized, uh, and underdeveloped, of course. Um, and one of my passions, uh, once I began doing my PhD, and to my surprise, realized that there was such little robust scholarship on the subject. And I thought, how is this possible? What could be more important to study in South Africa if you're in a planning school or in an architecture school or in any <laughs> developmental yeah, program yeah, yeah. than studying this this phenomenon field, yeah. of, of, of the fact that we've got these places. And yet, when I then start going through the school, and I'm searching the thesis, I'm looking at the masters, I'm looking at the PhDs, mm. th there were really few, and this really bothered me. And so one of the things I've been trying to do since then, and we're trying to do through Cities Network, possibly with UJ and others that are interested, uh, is to develop a program on, um, well, we call it the Township Economies Knowledge Support Program, and one of its key anchors is building the scholarship as the academic program. I, I'm of the belief, and I'm actually I'm one of the people, perhaps rightly or wrongly, who've been very positive about the whole decolonize movement, particularly when it comes to talking about curriculum, because I'm keen for us to think about what that means and what that might look like. I think we need to decolonize <laughs> the planning uh, uh, academy. 
Right. Uh, and in fact, I would maybe even broaden it to the built environment, maybe even the development disciplines. So one of the things we've been doing through Cities Network and speaking to other partners is thinking about this knowledge support program around townships. And one of its key anchors would be a program that focuses on academic development. And the idea is just to grow the volume of scholarship. It's to say that we've got masses of young people going into these university programs every year. Uh, how is it that, you know, with with that sort of, you know, throughput, that pipeline that's going in, I would imagine a good proportion of those kids, if nothing else, come from townships. Let's assume people are just not interested in that as subject matter, but that's where you're coming from. What is it that must happen for all of you to come in and think that you should study anything other than all of the challenges you've grown up sure. seeing? What is it that happens? Is it that uh, you get convinced that other things are more important? Is it that there's nobody able to advise and comment or you feel comfortable speaking to about what you think the problem is? Is it that your interests are different? And I can be, I can understand that. I yeah, mean, people no, I may want to go and study other things. But really, I mean, out of any particular year, from the volume of scholarship I've seen, it can't be more than one or two who's ever bothered to study <laughs> townships. So there's something there we've got to intervene into. There are all sorts of programs at universities. I'm at Wits right now. There's a big life in cities program. There's no life in townships program. There are very few of the big academic names we know who would probably lift up their hand to say that I will supervise any students who want to do township studies. That, that, that's, that's really interesting, Gish. I couldn't um, find supervision when I was looking so, so at I was about to say, is, is the problem not that there are not enough mentors? And yeah. what does that raise in terms of a question for professional bodies, for the academics, and for people like yourself and myself who've been involved for many years to say, well, this is a gap. If we don't fill it, we've got a problem. And, and and that's the question I think we all have to ask ourselves. And so for me, my commitment was to say, well, I'm interested, uh, I'm unhappy with the situation, and therefore I'll make my time available. Um, and I've been trying to make sense of what that means. So part of what we want to do is to see whether we can start a program that, first of all, valorizes this as a, as, as a, as a useful and important area of study, maybe tries to put some instruments in place, like mm -hmm. like these you know scholarship calls and bursaries that are themed, and to say, well, this is a theme as well. Yeah. But importantly, putting in the mentors and people who are willing to take the time to supervise. So I've been very clear with the two institutions I'm working with that the kinds of students I want to work with are the kinds of students that are studying these kinds of issues. Right. One of the responses I got is that the challenge sometimes is that those might be, for various historic and current reasons, some of the weaker students. And so my question was, do you mean they're weaker intellectually or do you mean they're weaker in the sense that, okay, maybe they don't write great? And usually it's the latter. Yeah, um, I, I, can, I can understand that. Yeah. And so if you're not intellectually stunted, <laughs> you know, if you mm -hmm. actually can do the work, you have the ideas, you have the lived experience, you have the passion, then I think we've got to find among us people who think it's important enough uh, uh, in spite of our comfort or discomfort around the subject matter. I mean, I'm born in Nairobi. What am I doing supervising people on studying South African townships? Well, you're very welcome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, I think I think we've got to find among us the people who are willing to make the time. You've recently been facilitating a, a, a week in Cape Town with a whole range of different countries uh, and urbanization experiences that have been shared. Um, perhaps some of your reflections on what surprised you, what's inspired you, what have, what have, what's some of your take-home points after four or five days here in Cape Town but sharing a whole range of experiences with people from as diverse places Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam uh, in uh, Colombia mm. uh, through Medellin 
and uh, China. We've, we've had a whole range. I'd be very interested to hear your thoughts after a, mm. an exhausting week of, of facilitating, <laughs> not so? Yes, but I mean, really exciting. I mean, you're mentioning, you know, all of these really interesting and, and quite diverse cities from around the world um, being here. And, you know, the first thing that strikes you is, uh, and, and I think the way we curated the learning journey was quite important because, you know, we started off, as you know, from this, you know, silo precinct in the waterfront, which impressed everybody to no end. The Chinese Stiff- delegation hasn't stopped talking about it. difficult not to be impressed, <laughs> but by God, where are we going to find the money? <laughs> hey, I mean, so if that could be rolled out across the territory, I think everybody would be delighted. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have a spare 100 million, was it, for the penthouse? I didn't people? bring it today, sorry. Oh, okay, <laughs> next week. Perhaps. Then perhaps next week. <laughs> so, I mean, so going from that to then spending time in the CBD itself mm-hmm. and talking about the... Um, partnership approaches that the city's been trying to work with here. And then, you know, moving on to Kailicha, where we then spent a day in the Harare node looking at that. I think that progression, uh, you know, doesn't shock me and maybe wouldn't shock many South Africans because we've almost gotten used to these extremes. Perhaps come numb at times. But, I mean, it was obviously uh, shocking to mm. the delegates. And I think many of them, as you heard, made comments around, you know, it almost feels like there's two different places. <laughs> two different cities. We've heard that described yeah, a couple of times this week. Several times, yeah, two different places. So, what, what, you know, I wouldn't, obviously that doesn't surprise me so much. I know this. Uh, but, you know, I was last in Kailicha on this particular tour maybe 10 years ago. Uh, and uh, I'm in Cape Town fairly regularly, more or less in the CBD usually, not so much the waterfront. Um, and what struck me in part was how little has changed. Um, and I, I find Cape Town beautifully tragic, quite frankly. Um, it's just such a beautiful place and such a cool place. And I can understand why everybody from the world wants to be here. Yeah. But you spend a little bit of time here, you know, and you feel a little bit like you're in fairyland, you know, where everything is both yeah, both beautiful and hideous because you're struck constantly about these extremes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're struck constantly about how you could be here and be completely oblivious to it. So, you know, I went to get some dinner the other day and just walking in the neighborhood where I'm staying. And you know, and they're lovely little cafes and quirky little places, and it's very cool. And you can see young people, and it's vibey, but it's a particular demographic, and it's very clear. And you know, also the stories you hear about the experience of young black professionals in Cape Town. You know, for me, walking around as a black person, I really saw and felt it. You know, you'll see all of maybe two or three black people, and it'll be a particular kind of black person that you'll see. Uh, and it's certainly not the experience of being in Kailicha. And it's it's not just that it's a spatially the, the spatial quality of the place is different. The place is fundamentally different. I don't even think it's two different cities. It's almost two different planets. Um, and 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 yeah. So and and I don't know. This is not a faulting. This is not a, you know an accusation against the administration of Cape Town. I just don't know what one does about this. But I've been coming to Cape Town, in fact, since 1998. I was teaching at UWC at the time. I used to come and guest lecture there, and I was coming from out of the country. And I remember back then being confronted in 2000 when my husband and my then boyfriend and I decided to move to South Africa and we were choosing cities, you know, where would we live? And I remember being very clear that it couldn't be Cape Town. And this is in 2000. And the reason was, in a way, exactly this. I realized I'd have to be very deliberate about where I chose to live in a way that I don't have to worry as much in Gauteng, actually. Uh, we ended up in Pretoria, where it really doesn't matter where you live. It's a very strange place. <laughs> but, but, um, but in Cape Town, a simple thing like that, where you choose to reside, 
in a way almost begins to determine the nature of the bubble you then <laughs> live in. Um, and uh, yeah, and so I, I really, I find Cape Town, I must say, very beautiful, but very disturbing. I mean, you, you, you embody the notion of the global citizen. <laughs> uh, home is Nairobi, Varsity, if I, if I understood correctly, UCLA yes. uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, worked very much based for, for the last 10 or so years in and around uh, Gauteng. Thousands of miles uh, separate these places. Maybe uh, broadening the horizons. We've talked a bit about Cape Town mm. and your time here, um, but let, let, let's look further beyond. Let's look at some of those other places and spaces you've occupied. Maybe some, you know, many of our listeners might not have been to some of these places. Would you like to share some thoughts on, <laughs> on these other places that you've spent time? Nairobi, we've heard uh, a lot about that this week. Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, these are, I mean, so the three places you mentioned, so s- cities in South Africa, Nairobi in Kenya, uh, Los Angeles in California. I mean, there are a couple of commonalities across them. So these are obviously very big, very urban places, um, fairly developed, I suppose. You know, today, we've, we've, we've this week, we've spent with cities like Monrovia and Liberia, which obviously are very different kind of urban, but these are other these others are very cosmopolitan, fairly developed places, and I've loved them. I think I really am truly urban in that sense because these are places that are intense, that are diverse, that are uh, problematic in all in very similar sorts of ways. All of them, you know, s- uh, crime and security is like part of the DNA. Uh, those kinds of challenges, um, lots to do, and the intensity around that, uh, lots of contestation and conflict, um, which again characterizes a lot of cities, uh, lots of change, um, but a richness, a quality that I really, really love and have uh, I almost, I wouldn't say I get high on it, um, but I think it's almost something that I need to have. And I think for me, particularly, the diversity. Um, so whether it's Los Angeles, which has all of these layers of, you know, large Asian community, large African American community, large, um, obviously American, you know, other, you know, other, other, other groups there, a large Hispanic community, and just the, 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 it's an amazing space to be in. A melting pot. It's well, well, it's much more complicated than a melting <laughs> pot. If they melted, <laughs> it might be easier. But you know, just having to be part of that and to learn that and to delve into it and to smell it and to uh, and to stay with the trouble to some extent because it is. I mean, a lot of cultural diversity equals trouble, and so that's been amazing. Joburg's been amazing for exactly the same reasons. I, I love Joburg. Um, <laughs> love Joburg. Uh, there's a lot that I don't love about Joburg. LA too. Um, Nairobi maybe less culturally diverse mm-hmm. than these others, but also a very diverse and intense city. So a lot of people go there and talk about maybe just the traffic, but um, also a lot of people and increasingly a lot of South Africans have been going there. I mean, it's just the best social life you could have. I mean, the nightlife, the kind of uh, the vibe. Um, I o- I almost have to sleep more before I go there because, you know, I know I'll be getting home at 6 a.m. <laughs> So this is the Nairobi, the party city, according to Geshi, right? Okay. Party city. Okay. I actually sometimes wonder how people manage to work there because, um, uh, but also you know, just socially, people are really cool and 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 I love. It certainly that. seems to have a very particular vibe about it, from what I've heard. Does, it does. You must go. You must go with. Day. You must go with me, and then uh, I can show you around. I tell you, by the sounds of it, I'll need a good weekend to sleep it off as well. Yeah. Look, but I, like again, straddled with very similar problems. The traffic really is hideous. Um, the um, ability of the city to keep up with its growth, um, the kind of culture of building regulation or sticking to plans is really problematic. Uh, so lots of challenges, lots of solutions that aren't solutions that have been happening over the last
past years, you know, building these massive uh, freeways and bypasses to expand road capacity and reduce traffic, which of course it never does, and many of us know this. So lots of those kinds of environmental issues galore, but but still amazing places that I think really have the innovative and human capacity to work their way out of it. So maybe that's one thing I'd leave with you is that I feel that part of the challenge with Cyril's statements were it sounded like more of this idea that we could build our way out of problems. I don't think that's the process of urban development that we need, one that tries to lead with stuff. I love tech and on another podcast, we, I hope we do talk, I mean, I love, I'm a, you know, I talk about tech all the time. I talk about tech and innovation. I don't think tech or innovation is going to help us escape the trouble we're in. I don't think infrastructure is going to help us escape the trouble we're in. I don't think new cities or bullet trains will do it either. I think people could. I think people will, but we've got to invest in that. We've got to invest in, first of all, believing in the fact that we've got the intellectual and the passion and the human capacity to do something different from what we've done, uh, that there are many more people who can and need to be brought into the process of this, and we've got to trust that. I believe we've got to build the capabilities and focus people on the issues that need focus and not distract them with funny projects. <laughs> I think we've got to stand up to where capital does things that don't work in the interest of the majority. Uh, I think there's a lot that we could do that's really on the level of understanding new processes that are needed in how we think about our cities. That That's what I believe in. Keshi, I mean, I really appreciate some of the, your, your, your thinking and reflection on this. I'm, I'm going to move towards a summary uh, and I'm going to ask one one last question, and then a, a, a final a, a final push from your side. Do you think we missed an opportunity in the rethink around the cabinet of not looking at something like a ministry of cities? Hmm. I know Brazil, I think, has gone down that route before. Um, he, here we are talking about a new city, uh, fourth day, in the absence of the existing. Do you think we might have missed an opportunity here? Yeah, so I'm of mixed minds about it. I think we might have missed an opportunity because I do think that continuing to have the issue of cities covered within a department like COGTA and then several of the key functions related to that being split up elsewhere. I mean, for crying out loud, the issue of land is now not only in a department of rural development, but of agriculture in rural development. Uh, and that's one of the most fundamental levers we've got to work with if we're going to crack this issue of cities. So, so that's really problematic. The fact that some of the competence and understanding in this area sits in DPME and some of it sits in the DHS, the fact that DHS as human settlements is so politicized and we all know this and we continue to accept that uh, uh, which means there's another lever there that we can't really work the fact that you know water sanitation is there and um, transports you know there um, so part of me thinks that a ministry of cities at least would have forced us to think in a, and act in a more integrated way politically mm -hmm. uh, and then definitely administratively as well. But um, look, I mean, I've done some work that's included looking at uh, Brazil and India and ourselves in terms of these issues. And they have their own stories about whether the ministry of cities works either as a solution. So I don't know that that's the solution, but I think we needed to have done something. Fair enough, and I say that, that I really appreciate you uh, considering that question. The podcast that we've tried to put together is really about inspiring the current and next generation of both professionals and activists, those people who are working in and around built environment uh, uh, issues, whether it's from the communities or within institutions. And perhaps as a parting shot from your side, is there any message at the moment 
I think we're all struggling with a whole range of issues and challenges and um, uh, you know, communities directly being impacted by things like uh, whether it's army interventions, whether it's lack of uh, sanitation, whether it's um, uh, not having a home, not having a job, or whether it's from our side saying, how do you get a job? How do we put homes on, on the ground? Any, any, any message uh, for, for the listeners from your side based on your experience and where, where, where you're at in your own professional career? Yeah. Look, I think it's really hard to be, I'll say planner, but take that as shorthand for other built environmental sure. professionals Understood. as well. I think, it's, I think it's a difficult time for us now for several reasons. Many of us are trained in a very deterministic field that makes us believe that things are going well when our plan's coming to fruition, the plan is working. Uh, um, and, and, and that's the tradition we're trained in, that's the discipline we're trained in. And we're obviously in a time where we are not the determinant of what happens and the plan isn't even the determinant of, of, of what happens. And I th it's easy, I think, to get quite despondent and, and, and quite frustrated. And a lot of what I see and feel in the space right now in many of our cities and many of our administrations is a lot of deep frustration and a lot of um, introspection and not necessarily of a generative nature, not the, not, not the sort that breeds inspiration. Sure. Um, and I think my message of inspiration, I guess, would be uh, that maybe we need to realize, uh, my, a, a good friend of mine, uh, Bayo Akomolefe, talks about, you know, at some stage you may realize that the promised road doesn't lead where you thought. Uh, and once you come to that realization that the problem is not necessarily the road, the problem is that you thought and maybe you were trained to believe that this was all about a destination that you would get to uh, and being the brilliant planner you are, you're, you're going to make that happen. Once you recognize that there isn't a promised land that this road is leading to, uh, part of what he talks about is this idea that you should recognize that there are many other paths uh, and they're not only left right and backwards they're also downwards he talks about sinking into the cracks um, so it's a bit of a, an abstract idea but I find it for me where I am right now oddly comforting this idea that let's not get paralyzed by the fact that our road doesn't seem to be leading to the destination we thought uh, maybe we're exactly where we're supposed to be uh, and maybe we need to make sense of that. And so perhaps the retreat then is not a retreat into depression and frustration about everything we see, but maybe it's a chance for us to really regroup, think, be where we are, sink into the cracks for a bit. These days people say stay with the trouble um, and, and, and really reflect. And who knows? I mean, maybe beautiful things come out of where we are. I mean, that's my hope. Otherwise, honestly, one can get extremely hopeless. Um, and, and, and I don't know that that's helpful as a professional. I don't know if it's helpful as a scholar or a practitioner uh, because I do see a lot of despondence around me. I think it can be deeply soul destroying. Um, and I would want people, particularly young people, young professionals to believe that um, maybe this is all just more complex than we thought. Stick with it. And we're not alone. Several of us, I think, I mean, you're doing this podcast. I think this is amazing. I think this is you sinking into your cracks. <laughs> Could, could well be, could well be. <laughs> and, and, and I think more of us perhaps need to get into this reflective mode rather than just a sort of a depressed and I'm out of here kind of mode. Geshi, on, the, on that note, thank you so much for spending some time with us. I really have enjoyed hearing your thoughts, hearing your reflections, and hopefully in a, in a year or so, maybe, we get you back, we reflect Yay! on where we're at, and we keep, keep, keep the conversation going. Thanks. All the very best. Enjoy the rest of your time with us in Cape Town and travel safely. Thank you, Pete. Appreciate it. Get involved, get informed, 
most importantly, get subscribed. You can find us on our Twitter feed at Talking Transfo and the number one. That's Talking Transfo One. Talking Transformations music, kindly supplied by Tribal Need. Find them at tribalneed.com.